This podcast may contain graphic and or explicit content that may not be suitable for some listeners, especially kids like me. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Real Life Podcast brought to you by the Thin Blue Line for Women. In this podcast, We open up and talk about real-life issues as they relate to first responders. It's raw, it's real, and it's about time. I'm Tamara, your host. Thanks for joining me. Don't forget, you can listen to The Real Life Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and on YouTube. Thank you for joining us. Before we start this episode, I have some very important people to thank. These are the sponsors of my podcast, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart because the money that you give every month goes directly to pay for the podcast program that I use to record the guests. So thank you, Cammie, Anne, Lori, Susan, Ron, Ben, Katie, Paul, and Kathleen. I super appreciate your support. In this episode, Nick and I have an open and very candid conversation about the cumulative stress he endured as a police officer and how it led to his current life situation, which he'll tell you all about. He discusses his constant struggles with post-traumatic stress disorder and talks about his upcoming book titled Invisible Wounds, A Cop's Journey of Faith Through the Darkness of PTSD. So this podcast episode is actually titled after his book. So here's my interview with Nicholas Anthony, a cop's journey of faith through the darkness of PTSD. Thank you for joining me. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. So Nick, you were a police officer. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself and tell the listeners about yourself before we get into um, talking about some post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. So um, I became a police officer after college, actually. My senior year in college, I started applying to different police departments in the last semester. And um, by the time I graduated, I had already had a job lined up. And I was supposed to go to the academy that summer. So that was 2007. And I was, I turned 22 in the academy. So, you know, I got hired at a relatively young age. But, you know, I was excited, you know, at the time to start my career and, you know, be so young and already have a job. At the same time, I was also, I was in the National Guard. I got commissioned when I graduated as a, uh, an officer in the Army, commissioned officer. I was a second lieutenant. So I had that going on too at the same time. So I, I belong to a military police unit that, you know, one week in a month, two weeks a year that I would drill with. And then I needed a permanent job. So that's why I started looking for, 
you know, hey, what's the best thing that matches police and military life? And that's where I was like, yeah, I might as well become a cop. So <laughs> it, it, it was kind of one of those things where, you know, I when I had gone through college and I did the ROTC program in college to become an officer in the Army, my intention was to originally go full time active duty as an Army officer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I ended up getting offered a scholarship for the National Guard. They, you know, they some of the sometimes the um, the National Guards will offer in a certain state a scholarship to try to pull officers that are going to be graduating into them versus going active duty. And, you know, it was tempting because they were essentially going to pay for the last two years of college. So I was like, okay, And, you know, I took that route. But I was like, now I need a job permanently. I so that's where I kind of got into the police thing. Well, thank you for your service. I did not know that about you. I was in the security police in the Air Force. Oh, there you go. I know, yeah. I know they call it MP, the Army and the Marines, right? And yes, the Air MP. Force, they call it security. Yeah, security yep. police. That's awesome. Multi-purpose, MP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you for your service because I did not know that about you. So you became an officer in 2007. Yep. And what kind of jobs did you do as an officer? Um, on the police department, you're talking on about, the right? police department. Yeah. yeah. So um, initially I was patrol, you know, and after I got off FTO and all that, I was assigned to second shift, which is you know, most of the time you go to midnights, but I was thrown right, right into the fire. Um, and I made a lot of mistakes, you know, I'm sure because I didn't have a lot of time to adjust. But as years went down the line, I'd always been interested in firearms and I've always been a good shot. And being from the military and running ranges in the military as a, you know, an officer and a range officer of the military, I eventually became a, a firearms instructor uh, at my department, which was like a dream come true for me. You know, I got to go a week, uh, two week school for that. And it was an awesome, excellent school. Um, it was actually the Smith and Wesson Academy I went to and wow. got trained as law enforcement firearms instructor. It was great. They did rifle, shotgun, handgun, uh, everything you know, off duties, night shooting. And it was probably to this day, I'd say one of the best trainings I've been to. And um, I did tell the thieves not to break in your house. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it was funny because at the time when they put out the position of firearms instructor, initially they were like, Hey, we're looking for firearms instructors was the email. And I just put in for rifle at the time. And they said they were looking for armors, this, that, but what they decided to do was, Oh, congratulations. You got everything. So you're going to be a pistol, handgun, I mean, a handgun, rifle, shotgun instructor and an armorer in all those things. So wow. they ended up sending me and two other guys to, uh, the three of us got selected. And they wow. sent us all to a bunch of schools all at once. Like that whole year, I was going from like armorer school to armorer school to firearm instructor school. Right. So, um, but I mean, it was good. I mean, it was a lot of, you know, um, I, I was out of everybody. I was the only person that didn't have rank. So there was a lieutenant that got selected with me and a sergeant. And, you know, there was little old me, just the officer. But, <laughs> you know, so it was always an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when we went away one time for a training and the department stuck the three of us in one hotel room. They didn't want to pay for separate hotel rooms. Of course not. Come so on. <laughs> who do you think got, didn't get a bed? Because there was two, there was two right. queen beds in the hotel room, and I ended up sleeping on a cot. On because right. you know I'm the officer, and you know there. So 
but it was awful because one I remember one guy was watching. He had training day on until like two a.m. in the morning, and blasting on the TV. And then the other oh. guy was snoring. So <laughs> I literally wanted to like I was shoving toilet paper in my ears. Like I felt like the guys in the prison cell. Like because we used to see that at work. Like when guys couldn't sleep, like they would take toilet paper and shove yeah. them in their ears in the cell yeah. block. So it was funny because. One of the guys the next morning was just dying because he's like took a picture of me. I had like <laughs> I was wrapping the blanket on my head, and so it was. Didn't uh, it bring? Didn't it bring you back to the basic training? Because I mean, oh, we were yeah, all was, on cots in the same room. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> it was just very. Uh, I don't know, and that was it was funny because the next morning we and we was a multiple day school. We ended up calling the department, and like one of the sergeants was like you can't do that again to us to like the like the administrative person at the department like you gotta <laughs> you gotta get us a separate room or we're gonna buy it ourselves because you're putting three grown men in a room together this is ridiculous <laughs> so the next day i actually got the room by myself the next day which was nice, nice. so Heck yeah we only they only granted us one extra room but wow you know and I was like, nope. I'm like, it's mine. I'm like, I slept on the cot last night. So, Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, okay. So you're on at 2007 and you're a firearms instructor. And what else did you do? Is there anything else? So, yeah. So in the armorer stuff, but uh, the, one of the big things I was known for. So I don't know what year it was, but we went on a call uh, one year and uh, this guy had armed himself with a rifle. And, um, the call was supposedly, you know, the dispatcher had talked the woman out of the house. It was a relative. I don't know if it was a wife or whatever, because he was just, it was, it started as a domestic. And then he told her he was going to kill her. And then he said, if you call the police, um, there's going to be a bloodbath. I'm going to kill all the cops. So the dispatcher had her, it was at night, run across the street. There was a fire station, like two blocks down. And he said, run to the fire station and meet the firemen there and stay out of the house and the police are going to deal with it so she's like he's got he's a hunter he's got an infrared scope mm -hmm. you know and for people that don't know what that is that you can see heat signatures right. like you're hunting deer like you know i compare it to predator you know yeah <laughs> so right. you're right you know the movie predator where it can see at night so we're getting ready to go and it was me another kid i went to the academy with a sergeant at the time and one other kid and um Two of us were only in the military. It was me and my other buddy that I went to the academy with that both served in the military. And we're getting ready to go gear up, you know. And at the time, we had just started getting rifles. and You know, you were allowed to have your own rifle. I had my own rifle. So we're getting our rifles and we're gearing up. And, you know, my buddy looks at me and goes, shouldn't we have a medical kit? He's like, I mean, we're going to be, like, out there by ourselves. If this guy starts opening fire, like... What you know, and in the army, you know, you train to patch up gunshot wounds and do all that stuff, and mm -hmm. it became even better. Like since you know Iraq and Afghanistan, now they expanded so much upon tactical trauma training and medical training. But in the police world, it was non-existent at the time. You know, this was before a lot of the active shooters started kicking off, and right, right. you know this stuff. Mm -hmm. So after that call, it ended peacefully. We ended up going into the woods from behind the house and we came out and we actually had the guy come out of the window of the kitchen in the backyard and we pulled him out. But like the whole time I'm thinking walking through the woods, like this guy's watching us, like right. our little heat, our heat signatures running <laughs> across scary. the yard and he's going to be picking us off. So when we opened the trunk, the medical kit in the back of the trunk was literally like a patch of gauze, 
some some tape and band-aids like it was you know if you were going to get it shot by a high-powered hunting rifle it wasn't going to do anything so after that i was like you know what i'm going to make it my mission and i actually went to the department was like hey i want to get like i found a class at the time it was um officer down rescue instructor was the name Mm, of it uh and it did officer down tactics and tourniquets and um blood clotting agents like quick clot and things like that and um and you'd be instructor certified so they were like no you know we don't need that we have rescue people like they just didn't understand the concept and i was like well the rescue's not going to come in if rounds are being you know flying over the head so i ended up paying at the time it was 800 dollars of my own money to go and Ooh, get certified wow. Wow. but i'm glad i did it because it was a great training you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I ended up after I did it, I came back and I was like, Hey, like I paid myself. I want to train the department now. And they were like, of course, budget issues. Well, you can train them, but just do it during roll call. And I was <laughs> like, you know, one of those, I mean, you know, roll call trainings. I mean, who's, who's half paying attention, who's eating, you know, or, you know, even depending on the supervisor and some people don't want to be bothered or, you know, so I did. I had some guys, we would go out in the back lot and uh, we did some, you know, drills or real quick, but then the calls come in, you don't have time and mm-hmm. it's not an adequate training. So I, for years I had begged for like, give me a, like a block of time to train. We do all mm-hmm. this training and not, we had like four hours one day for electric vehicle training from like the fire <laughs> department on, on hybrid vehicles. You know, mm-hmm. that has nothing really to do with us other than the, after four hours, the, the one thing I took away with it was don't go near, don't touch any electric wires in an electric vehicle in a car accident. You know, so <laughs> like they could have summed that up in a sentence for a police officer because that uh-huh. we're not the ones doing all that, you know, right. but yet they wouldn't give something to this. So, interesting. you know, they ended up, I put in for a tactical emergency medical specialist by the same company was running this training. And it was um, a week long, 40 hour block of basically like a SWAT medic training. So I said, hey, can I go to it? I put in for it again. This time they said yes, because they felt like they owed me because Mm. of what happened. Mm -hmm. So that kind of became my thing at the department. Everybody knew me as the, you know, the tactical medical guy. Like I ended up getting kits for us. I ended up getting tourniquets. And um, later they did. And the state was running a stop the bleed program, the national stop the bleed. So I ended up getting certified as a stop the bleed, train the trainer, which stop the bleeds more of like, it's less of the tactical aspect of it, more of the medical and you can train civilians too. So, you know, I, we did an active shooter training one day cause I'm an active shooter instructor too, through uh FLETSI, the FLET, uh, federal law enforcement training Academy uh, center. And they, they have a great active shooter instructor program. So we did get to put together, I put together an after instructor training for a whole week, had the guys rotating out at the time we did stop the bleed. We, you know, we issued them little kits with quick clot and things like that. And so, I mean, I feel like it to some extent, like I, I was able to make a difference. And it's funny because one of the officers at, we did tourniquet training probably a year before that in like one of the ranges. So during, you know, cause that's how things are with budget is hey, we don't have time to do a separate tactical medical training on tourniquets. Why don't you integrate that into the range while you guys do range week? So mm-hmm. we did. I, you know, I went over tourniquets one day at the range and I explained them just in like a roundabout. We all circled around, you know, before we started shooting. And I, I yeah. explained the tourniquet, how to put it on, where to put it, the proper use of it, et cetera. Well, like a month later, an officer is driving home from work 
and sees a car accident on the highway and a guy is ejected out of the vehicle down the side of the ramp, lost his leg. And the officer had went out and purchased his own tourniquet and went and applied the tourniquet on the guy's leg. And at the time, doesn't tell anybody at the department he did this. So nobody knew about it. So he had come up to me like right after it happened. He was like, hey, he's like, I want to tell you something. He's like, I used your training the other day and I used my tourniquet. Like some guy witnessed a car accident and the guy's leg was off. And I'm like, I go, did you like tell anybody about that? He's like, no, I I didn't tell anybody. I'm like, well, you probably should like that you did all that. Well, the media got a hold of it. And eventually the story came out and the kid was awarded because he did. I mean, he was a hero, you know, and he got to save the life. And even though I, I, you know, I didn't, but if I didn't train him in that, you know what I mean? So I don't want any of the credit for it. I just want, you know, I'm glad that it, you know, one thing can make a difference. And that Ah, just goes to show you that, you know, years ago, they didn't want to hear this. They didn't want what a tourniquets. We don't need that, you know? So, and we've come a long way now that I've yet to find a cop out there now that, you know, I just, the other day I was in here and I saw a cop somewhere had a tourniquet on his belt and I used to carry one on my belt. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad to see that it's becoming, a national thing, but I feel like I was on the forefront of a lot of that, especially in my department, trying to push that. And I ended up even, you know, I said to the chief one day at the time, I was like, Hey, like, can I go to the schools? Cause we were doing the Alice program too. in the schools, are you familiar mm-hmm. with Alice? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And you know, I was part well, of the Alice. For, for the people listening, tell them what Alice is because they don't know. Right. So Alice is an active shooter response, but it's on the civilian level. So um, for school teachers, for example, if there is an active shooter, um, instead of just locking down, which is the traditional response for active shooter, they still want you to do that, but only if you have exhausted other options and you can't escape. So basically the way Alice works to sum it up is it's options. It's you know, and the first drill that they do in Alice training is just to set the example so people understand is they have you locked down like you normally do. They have all the teachers get the students and go cuddle, you know, hide in a corner. Mm-hmm. And then the person who acts as the shooter during the first scenario comes in, makes entry into the classroom and now goes up to where everybody's huddled and starts going pop, pop, pop with an air gun or whatever. And right after that, the teachers, you know, will get pulled aside and be like, how did that work? And they're like, I felt like a sitting duck. Mm-hmm. So what Alice does is it gives them another option. If you think someone's coming into the room, barricade the doors with chairs or, you know, throw items at the intruder if he comes in. Or if you can get out, get out. If you think the shooter is, you know, you can tell maybe they're on the other side of the school. You know, maybe we can communicate somehow or to have everybody leave the other end of the building. You know, so... The biggest thing was I wasn't an Alice instructor, but I was on the Alice team because I was a firearms instructor. So uh, I was one of I was the guy who's usually the guy with the rifle blasting off blank rounds in the training, because that's how we did it to make it real for the the teachers. Like right. I would go uh-huh. in there, and my buddy was one of the head Alice instructors. So he would every time I would do it, he would like, hey, can you grab an AR? And I would get you know the AR-15 with the blank firing adapter, and I would order blanks, and we would do the drill. So so the teachers here what a real gunshot sounds like. They smell the gunpowder in the air, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's just a a great experience for them. And they can hear it. Like we would go down the hall and I would have the rifle and I would start shooting from down the hall so they could hear the difference of the, as it gets closer. So, you know, 
I think part of that was I said to the, the, you know, the chief was all on board with Alice. So I was like, you know, and while we were doing these trainings, a lot of teachers would ask, well, what happens if we do get shot or what happens? How do we take care of each other? And I was like, you know, and as an instructor in that, I'm like, well, you know, there are things you can do. And at the time I was like, you can go online, there's websites, you know, stop the bleed and, you know, learn these things. And there's kits out there to buy these things. Cause the reality of it is these teachers today, a lot of them feel like they're helpless. And in this scenario, they want to do whatever they can to defend themselves and defend the children, mm-hmm. you know? So I had said to the, you know, chief, I said, look, do you mind if I, am I allowed to train some teachers? So he said, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it would be good PR. And I did, you know, I ended up, I started with, it was a Catholic school, small Catholic school, but, um, you know, like a K through eight and the nurse at the school, um, she actually was all about it. Like just was a hundred percent wanted to do it. And her and I worked together and I trained all the teachers, all the staff there, and I showed them all the equipment and, you know, and they, they loved it. And she ended up getting a donation from a bunch of, um, like churchgoers because it was a catholic school a bunch of um she called them the the church lady group or whatever they were they were like a group of women that met from the church Uh and they decided to donate money and she came to me and was like hey we got donated money she's like can we order some kits show me what to order and i ended up getting the um trauma they actually wall mounted trauma kits from some of these companies so it mounts just like you would see an aed you Mm -hmm. know a defibrillator on the wall of a school now, next to that would be a wall-mounted trauma thing with a clear plastic case, and you'd open it, and there would be, you know, X amount of trauma kits in there mm-hmm. to handle gunshot wounds. You know, it's sad that we have to say that that's something. That needs, <laughs> I was just going to say that. Need to be in a school, right. but it's also sad that we do Alice and things like that in mm-hmm. lockdown. I mean, I remember Absolutely. the first time first time I went to a, lo- a real lockdown, we had had uh, an accidental lockdown. Sometimes it happens because the teachers have the uh, the buttons and stuff, certain ones, and uh, accidentally was hit. And nobody knew who it, they couldn't figure out. It was taking a while to find out which button was triggered. So we had to treat it like a real scenario. Right. So we were going in and we're going through these buildings. And it was the first time I actually saw a lockdown. And we ended up opening a door that was open. And I went in the classroom and, and we scared the teachers and the children, even though we were cops, but here mm-hmm. these kids were all huddled together, like, yeah, and right. you know, so it innocent. Just, right. And now that I, I have a five-year-old that is, you know, she was in um, preschool this year and she's going into kindergarten and, you know, they've done the, you know, the schools now tell you when they do the drills, mm-hmm. but lockdown and, you know, they try to, it's just sad and it's scary. It, it, breaks, my, it, it breaks my heart that these kids don't understand why they're doing this. And, right. You know, and but I mean, I ended up training um, that school and then uh, the public school was an issue more so because what public schools, you you know, private schools can do whatever they want. But public schools, you have to go through, you know, the superintendent, and things like mm-hmm. that. But yeah. I had a principal reach out to me from that I was friendly with because that that school was the middle school. It was in my area. So even though I wasn't a school officer, I was there all the time. And I had a good working relationship with the principal and the assistant principal. And uh, he wanted to do the training. So he's like, look, Nick, like I can only do it. I can't force these teachers to do it because it's a union issue with the school and the teachers Mm -hmm. union because I can't pay them. If they want to do it, it has to be voluntary. So 
he offered it and 30 people actually, you know, but the school has a hundred and something teachers, but 30 teachers volunteered to spend time after school on like an administrative day Mm -hmm. and go through the training, you know? So it's just, you know, they're still making way out there. And a lot of this stuff has to come down from the state levels to be mandated. And, you know, where I was from in Rhode Island, where I worked, you know, they're not there yet, unfortunately, but I think eventually we'll see that. So your resume is impeccable. I mean, you've just oh, you. <laughs> listed all of these wonderful things that you've done and you, you've, you've trained in so much. I can't believe it. I had no idea. My gosh. Um, well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to dive into the incident. Um, I'm going to say, I guess that just changed your life. It changed your career. So we'll be right yeah, back. Okay. No, we'll, we'll be right back. Are you interested in CSI or forensics? The Forensic Science Academy program has been recognized as the premier training program completely dedicated to students who are launching their forensic career. The Academy offers specialized hands-on training modules in basic and advanced crime scene investigation, forensic photography, fingerprint identification and classification, crime scene management, and coroner investigations. Instruction is offered in the form of weekend workshops, online courses, webinars, and seminars. Training at the Academy of Forensic Science will give students the competitive edge employers and agencies are looking for when hiring. Past graduates are now working as crime scene investigators, private investigators, forensic pathologists, coroner investigators, forensic nurses, forensic accountants, and even criminalists. The courses are taught by forensic professionals who are experts in the field and hold membership in the International Association for Identification and other professional forensic organizations. For more information, visit ForensicScienceAcademy.org. Again, that's ForensicScienceAcademy.org. All right. Welcome back from break. Now, Nick, um, after we've just went over your extensive resume, you are not working right now as an officer, correct? Correct. I'm, uh, you're employed, but you're technically still, I'm on the department still right now. I'm just not, I've been on unpaid leave since I expended all my personal time in October. Okay. Tell me and the listeners why. So come last year was a difficult year for me. I was, um, this time, actually, last year, I had a, uh, I would call it a breakdown, I guess, at work. And I was having a lot of physical symptoms, you know, eye issues. I was having headaches. And it just seemed like a lot of it was related to going into when I was heading into work. Like every t- every morning, I was getting out of my car in my back lot at the police station and walking in. I would get sudden sharp pains in my head and just, I didn't know what was going on, but to backtrack a little bit that like year. So right before that happened, a few months before, like I had some sudden death calls and, you know, we call sudden deaths at work. That's when, you know, you have to go at, I don't think people realize, you know, when every time someone passes away in a public place or in their home that the police have to respond, mm-hmm, right? you yeah. know, so to make sure you know, that it's not foul play. Right. And you, you know, you know, more than anybody as, you know, a CSI person, like, you know, there has to be an investigation 
and just, you know, and a lot of times it's nothing, but, you know, but now with drugs and, you know, suicides and you do see all that stuff and, you know, for 12 years, you can imagine I've seen, I mean, you know, there's tons of it that I've seen and even the regular ones were starting to bother me. You know, mm-hmm. the ones that like, I had a lot of issue too with, you know, I think if you talk to some cops, sometimes you'll hear the similar thing that that's echoed is. When an old person passes, you tend to be able to justify it because they were elderly. It was their time, you know, and then what I started doing was justifying other things like, OK, well, this person died of a heart attack. It was their fault because they didn't take care of themselves or they were obese or this person overdosed because, you know, it's their fault or this person died in a car accident because they were driving too fast, maybe, or they were reckless. You know, so I found myself worried about death you know and having children now things mm-hmm. get worse i feel like because now you're not just worried about yourself <laughs> right you're worried about your kids uh-huh. and, oh, yeah. you know you're like i i see people die sometimes and you're like I, you know could that be me like what if i died and my kids don't have a father now and mm-hmm. you know these were fears that were consuming me mm-hmm. literally and making me physically ill Mm-hmm. And as I got physically ill with the headaches and things like that, all the more that it plays off as, okay, I'm having bad headaches now. You know, am I going to be that person that dropped drop dead in the middle of the supermarket with an aneurysm that I've seen? You know what right. I mean? Yeah. yeah. So it became an unhealthy fear and unhealthy just in everything. And I wasn't making the connection initially what was going on. Now, I do know about 2016, I went on a call and that was like the breaking point for me. And it was a young man who had, he was in a vehicle, you know, and he ended up, it was, you know, I ruled it a suicide as, as my investigation, but we weren't sure it was a carbon monoxide poisoning. And we weren't sure if it was intentional, accidental, but he was so young. Like, I'm sorry, like, in his early twenties, I don't even remember, but just someone that had so much youth in him that he shouldn't have been gone. Yeah. And he had such a following of friends in town and he was a likable guy. And I just, for some reason I could not look at him in the vehicle. I couldn't do it. And I don't know if it was a defense thing or what, but like after that, just everything changed. And that was 2016. And I, you know, of course I went up. Go ahead. Do you mean, do you mean you couldn't look at his face? Not only his face, but just the scene, you know, like, so I'm there and I'm outside the garage, but I'm avoiding actually looking into the driver compartment of the car and okay. seeing his face and seeing. But you have to take notes for your report. So how did that work? So I was able to kind of look and I knew he was laying down in the vehicle. So. I looked, I saw he was laying down and, you know, or, you know, he was in there. So I was able to kind of word it as, and, you know, our department, we have CSI too. So mm-hmm. our, B, our, we call him BCI. So our BCI officer comes out and he's going to process the scene anyway. So I wasn't too worried about gotcha. what I don't, you know, see. And, you know, most of the time on some of these other calls, you know, the medical examiner comes out too. So mm-hmm. they're going to, they are BCI and medical examiner from the state will work together and they'll do it, you know, and, you know, I've been on calls before where I've had to physically, you know, roll the person over or check for, you know, all the things that we, we look and check for. And, 
you know, for signs of death. And But again, that's not my specialty. It's just something we're basic mm-hmm. trained in as a police officer, yeah. you know. What's, what's BCI? I don't know what that is. So I think in... Um, I think it's like basic crime scene investigation. Or I oh, believe it's basic for. crime investigator, maybe. Okay. Right. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. Okay. And Sorry about they that. They go in Rhode Island. They go to school for it to get certified, like police, to go. You know, mm-hmm. and then okay. in our department, they would end up on a call out list. Okay. So we gotcha. had multiple different BCI people that would get uh, called out okay. on a rotating list, and they would go on these <clears> scenes. So. I did the best I could, you know, I, I went and I documented the scene. Otherwise there was other things. And I documented the text messages that were being sent between him and his, you know, back and forth and different things. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, I just felt like at the time, like it looked, and then the family showed up and like, I had never, you know, you, family always shows up on, on some of these scenes sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's another mm-hmm. issue that you deal with oh, as a yeah. cop is, you know, grieving family members, angry family members, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, physically angry family members that want to get by you to see the person don't yeah, believe right. you. They're accusing right. you of lying. All these things that are, are natural with yeah. death. Yeah. This, this individual literally like 30 people showed up on scene. Like that's how wow. popular he was. Yeah. Like there were cars pulling up and like the lawn was filled with people. And like that just made how, it so much. Did they, did he send a text to everybody saying he was going to do this or something how did they all know he was there no i you know the friend found him oh, so a so friend, friend found him i think started, that friend started the chain maybe but oh. you know i so now i've got all these family members there all these friends and like i'm starting to get upset because you know it's hard and i i was getting to the point where i couldn't their trauma became my trauma oh, like, yeah right even Compassion though in, yeah. And the thing is, like, you know, my family, like I would talk to my my parents about like sometimes, you know, I always talk to my mom on the way home from work sometimes just to vent. And I would be like, you know, and she would be like, well, that's not your relative. But I'm like, you don't understand. Like when you're in these positions, like mm-hmm. I get it, but that's you can't help but relate to these people, right, you know, yeah. and, and start to be feel sad. And after a while, it's like how much trauma and tragedy am I going to see in not worry that when am I, when is it my turn? Mm-hmm. You know, and I just got tired of seeing it. And, you know, things got from that point on, things really got worse. I mean, years before that, I, I, I had, you know, we used to meet up as officers side by side, you know, we used to call it a 1036, like, you know, talking. <laughs> we, we call it 940. <laughs> right. So, you know, one day I'm 36 and with this officer, and this was even years before 2016. And I said to him, like, I was talking about, I had must've just gone on a sudden death call. And I was like, man, like these, I can't, they really weigh on me. I'm like, I just feel so bad. And he's like, Oh really? He's like, I didn't know you felt that way. Like, he's like, Oh, like, you know, and I just, again, you carry on and you do your job because it hasn't reached that point yet where you're going, you know, and I just got to that point, you know, and I, I had gone this month of July last year the last call I had gone on school was not in session yet. And we got called to a high school. Um, the janitor was cleaning and ended up dying in the stall, cleaning the stall. Oh my goodness. And so I show up first and there's a young kid there who was also in a janitor who found him, but he literally had talked to him like 30 minutes ago. And Aww. the guy was complaining about stomach aches that he didn't feel mm-hmm. good. And, you know, the fire department came in and, you know, they, they did their thing and they pronounced him and, you know, my, my biggest issue in Rhode Island, I don't know if it exists everywhere else, but it, it, I felt it was a problem and it, I don't think it helped me. They changed the CPR law, which 
now they do 30 minutes uninterrupted CPR on scene. In the past, when somebody was recently deceased, they would whisk them away in the rescue, do CPR en route to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Now the idea is that CPR uninterrupted is supposedly supposed to work better. So oh, okay. they just, and they, you're on a flat surface versus in the back mm-hmm. of a rescue, it's bumpy yeah. and you're not getting a full compression or whatever. So now, regardless of where you are, this person could pass away in a football stadium in the middle of family. The whole thing now is CPR right then and there, 30 minutes straight, and they time it on their phone. And when they're done, that's pretty much, they call the hospital, or if there's a paramedic on scene who's able to call it, and they call the hospital say, yep, we did 30 minutes, we gave them all kind of injections, whatever, nothing worked, okay, call it, time of death, and then they pronounce them there. And now the rescue picks up and they leave, and you're the police officer stuck with the grieving family member that is like, why aren't they taking my, my, my relative to the hospital? Right. And now you're like, well, this is the protocol now. Like they did everything. You have to explain to them that they physically did everything they can medically do, you know, but I know it's, as a family member, I still would be not okay with that. Like, right. Yeah, you know, and you wonder what was the reasoning behind it. When we, fir- they first came out behind us, we were like, well, does the hospital not want an overload of you know, the morgue or I don't know. Cause essentially yeah. these people would get to the hospital and then they'd be pronounced dead at the hospital. Mm-hmm. So now are they trying to save that procedure? Yeah. I don't know, but it was one of those things that like, you know, CPR is, you know, I've done CPR on people and, you know, I've never seen it work. And right. I, I'm not saying it doesn't work, but like when I had talked to my psychiatrist about it one time, I was like, that was a big thing for me. And she also works on a hospital floor. So she was like, well, I've seen it work a million times. And I said, well, you know, maybe that would have helped me at the time. But I said, because when I hear through the radio CPR in progress, or I have to do CPR, I'm like, my automatic thought is that person's gone. Yeah. You my, know? Mine too, actually. Right. So you, you yeah. know, you know, it's almost like a last ditch attempt mm-hmm. yeah. to, you know, and very rarely do they get a pulse back or whatever. And now the fact that they don't even bring it in the hospital anymore, it just, but so anyway, this guy, it ended up being a heart attack, but like, um, or that's what the EMTs thought on scene. And they were just like, yeah, it's probably a heart attack. Like, oh yeah, sometimes you get stomach aches the night before and this and that. And I'm like, what? Yeah. I'm like, you know, and then in my mind now, like, I'm having like a stomach ache. And then all of a sudden I'm like, am I going to like, it was just, it was so unhealthy. It was like, yeah, no, I get that. You know, and I can't even, I was embarrassed even to tell people about it initially yeah. about what was going on. And so, then, oh, so go ahead, though, no, no, I, I don't want to over override what you're saying. I'm just making sure that I keep up. And so the listeners keep up. So those, those that's 2016 is when you really started to feel like right. physically and emotionally overwhelmed by the cumulative uh, scenes that you were, that you were experiencing. And, and so yeah. you were having obviously physical problems. So then what happened next? Like if, well, like what see, did you I do get, about it? The thing is, I mean, you know, as well, or any cop out there is going to know. And this is the thing that I, I want to be a voice to help is you're afraid that if you say anything, even if it's, it wasn't that bad back then, that maybe, it could have been, but you're afraid if you go to somebody and say, Hey, I'm having a problem looking at dead people that they're going to take your badge and your gun away and you're going to lose your job, you know? And as somebody with a family and mortgages and things like that, like you don't know what to expect and you don't know how you're going to be labeled or how they're going to take it. So, you know, 
just keep doing it because you mm-hmm. assume, well, I'll find my own way to deal with it. I'll try not to, you know, my thing that I dealt with was I would try not to analyze the body over analyze it. When I would mm-hmm. go on a scene, I would kind of, I'd see it, I'd do what I had to do, but not spend too much time in there. I would, once I was done, I'd leave the room and stay outside the room and watch, you know, instead of as long as I could guard it until, you know, as a crime scene or whatever, until the ME could get there. But I didn't want to be in the room with the body. And there were things I was doing to try to mm-hmm. distance yeah. myself from that. that so I ended up, um, come July last year, that was after that guy with the, the janitor. About mm-hmm. a few weeks later, I was at work and I just had a, I, I guess you could call it a panic attack. I didn't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. I was headed into the locker room and I felt like, literally the walls were closing on me. I felt like I was suffocating. Like I didn't even, and I've never felt that before in my life. And I'm ignoring it. Cause I'm thinking, what is this? Like, I'm just going to get dressed, put on my gear, go to roll call, and sit through roll call. And then, you know, the sergeant's in roll call. And it's just like, I felt like I wanted to scream. Like that's the only way I can describe it. Like help. Yeah. So I run out as soon as he's done, you know, most of the time we would stay and, you know, chit chat and joke and, you know, bust each other's beans in roll call, but I ran right out. I got my car loaded up, my cruiser, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna get on, start my day, do it like I normally do. So I'm driving down the road and I'm really, really trying hard to ignore it. And then finally I'm like, I need to pull over. So I pull behind a school and the school was closed because it was school was out of session still in July. And I just pull over and start gasping like I can't breathe. And then, you know, I look up to the sky and I say, you know, towards God, I say, what is wrong with me? I'm crying at this point now and I can't control myself. So I call my wife and I'm like, and she's, you know, obviously scared. She's like, what is going on? I'm like, I have no idea. I'm like, I just, and she's like, you need to come home. So I collected myself enough and I went up to the Lieutenant and I sat at the desk and I was just like, look, I don't know what's going on. I said, I haven't been sleeping good. Um, you know, I said, I feel like I'm literally falling apart. Like, I, I don't know. I'm saying, I sorry. I said, I was almost apologetic. Like, I, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. And I, he's like, well, maybe you should go home for the day. Like take the day off. Like, and I'm like, but like, I feel like I can get, like, if I just maybe sit for a little bit, I'm like, or have it like, maybe I'll calm down. Like, I don't know. And he's like, no, like go home. So I did. And I went, but I went downstairs and I sat in the locker room for like another 30 minutes, just on the chair in there. Like I just couldn't process what was going on. Couldn't move like just so afraid. Like I didn't know, you know, and it just got worse. The next day we ended up going to the ER or the next day after that, I don't even know. My wife took me to the hospital cause I was like literally a basket case. I felt like I was going to jump out of my skin. If I could jump out of my body, literally I would have, wow. I wow. just couldn't settle, couldn't sit <clears throat> so uncomfortable, agitated by the slightest noise, the slight, you know, and it just, wow. that, carried on for a while and i finally had to make the phone call to somebody at work because i was i took some time off vacation days thinking like i was gonna just relax get better yeah. you know i went to a, went to a doctor they put me on you know zoloft to try to take the edge off and it just wasn't helping and you know because i guess that's one of those things that needs to take like six to eight weeks yeah to, to, yeah. to do any like you feel right. like you have six to eight weeks <laughs> right oh God. So I, I called because I, I, the more I had to, to, you know, thought that I was going back to work, the worse it was making me because here I am not mm. physically in a place like to go to work. Right. And I'm curled up in a ball, literally rocking on the bed in the morning because that was the only thing that gave me comfort. And then 
you know, I, I find myself saying, well, I need to tell them because uh, let's be realistic. I can't go back and I need to let mm-hmm. them know something's wrong and I'm going to need, you know, so I called a peer support person. I was just going to ask you, did you guys have peer support on your department? Yes, we did. So um, they were in a transition period where it was the one person who was in charge. She had just passed off the role to, she was a sergeant to an officer. And um, I didn't realize that the role was being handed off to him. So I had called her, but she was like, it sounds to me like you're having PTSD. Mm-hmm. So that's before that, it never really clicked, you know, that that was what it might be. But she was like, are you willing to talk to somebody? Like, you know, we have, so the town hires an agency that has clinicians and, you know, yeah. and they work for the, not just the town, but the PD and, you know, they offer services for anxiety, different things like that. So, yeah. you know, I said, yes. And I eventually did talk to her and she's been great. I mean, uh, her name's Becky, her first name and that's up, but she's mm-hmm. like an angel, you know what I mean? And, and I, I, we're still seeing her. Yes. I still see, but now that I had moved and everything, like I haven't seen her and then COVID kind of put a dent and everything. Mm-hmm. So, but we had, we had talked on the phone. She actually called me on my way down to Florida, check in on me. And, uh, you know, like I said, she was that person that I met her every week for like the last year. And we would just, mm-hmm. I would just talk, you know, and I didn't realize all this stuff that came out, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like stuff that I was burying. And I actually, and I would tell Becky though, like sometimes I'm like, you know, I would feel cathartic after I, I spend an hour and a half, two hours talking to you. But then later on at night, I can't sleep. I'm having nightmares because you dig it up. Uh-huh. And then, you know, at one point I was like, look, I don't want to talk about stuff anymore. Like, but that's cognitive behavioral therapy. It's essentially. Right. Yeah, that's my favorite kind. Talk- right. It's essentially talking through things. So mm-hmm. at one point I got to a point where I realized that I knew in my heart I couldn't go back. Uh-huh. And I, you know, the doctor, we hadn't gotten there yet. And of course, a lot of these places want to get you back. You know, that's their goal is to get you Mm -hmm. fixed and get Mm -hmm. you back. But I saw that it was getting really bad. And I was starting to distance myself from anything law enforcement. I couldn't look Mm -hmm. at my uniforms. You know, I just, it was, a, you know, and I, I didn't realize, but when I started telling her these things, like I didn't realize that there were other cops that were going through the same thing and experience the same exact things, you know, the noise sensitivity. I'm like, my kids, I'm like, you know, kids are kids, but I'm like, sometimes even like the happy laughter and stuff, I said, I would get so agitated and like, it would like create like an anger in me. Like, and Mm -hmm. it's not right. Cause that's not me, you know? And I would say to my wife, like, I gotta go upstairs. I gotta be alone. I gotta, I gotta, you know, put a pillow over my head so I don't hear anything, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's just, it's a horrible way to live. And then on top of it, I kind of got the impression from the department, not peer support. And I always want to say that, specify that, that one guy I was dealing with, he was awesome. And he, you know, he was kind of taking it on the chin for me from the department because they were confused. They didn't know what was happening and they were kind of grilling him. Yeah. Like, well, what's going on with them? When's he coming back? And, you know, and he was just like trying to tell them and explain to them, like, he's entitled to his privacy and he's getting treatment and, you know, they wanted to know everything. And, you know, I wasn't ready to talk about it yet. And I wasn't ready to talk to anybody yet besides him. And um, I just got the impression like I wasn't being helped. And, you know, eventually when the clinician said, this is PTSD, this is from work, she had given them a letter saying, look, he's in treatment indefinitely. And we're going to refer him to a psychiatrist type of thing. And, 
we believe, you know, it's work related. Well, it was a very vague letter. Well, they came back automatically and they denied any work compensation with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Denied, you know, and um, eventually I saw a psychiatrist who and she diagnosed me fully with, you know, completely work related, which we knew. I mean, you know, I, I was in the military, but I didn't experience combat in the military. I never went overseas. So you can't say that I got it from there, Mm -hmm. you know, and I passed a psychological test when I became a cop. I never Mm -hmm. had any mental health issues. So, you know, and I knew exactly what it was from, that it was from the deceased bodies and the different things that was affecting me. And, you know, what's weird about PTSD is it just so many other things it affects physically. Like, you know, I didn't realize, too, that like I my heart rate out of nowhere would go up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. Suddenly uh-huh. it would just start yeah. like, and I didn't know what caused it. Like I found that going up the stairs in my house and not because I'm on a shape, just like if I ran up the flight of my stairs to my second floor, sometimes when I reached the top landing, I would get into like, almost like, you know, cause we had a lot of tenant houses and things like that. And I really think what was happening, cause I didn't make the connection right away was my body's preparing. I'm heading up the stairs, even though I'm in my house, my body's thinking I'm going into a call, going into a domestic mm-hmm. and my heart would start acting like really funny. So the way I would control it was I would have to consciously think, you know, I used to happy thoughts like Peter Pan while I'm walking up the stairs and go slow, (laughs) go slow up the stairs. So I'm not like, you know, cause we all, you know, home, your kids, you jog Uh up the stairs fast, you know, you're like, but then I would realize that, Hey, don't do that because your body is getting kicked off into some kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. So, you know, I ended up having a heart monitor put on me for, you know, 20, like 72 hours or whatever they put it on. And, you know, there was nothing irregular. What might be, it's not that because it comes from the PTSD. It's just, mm-hmm. it would raise and yeah. lower, but the rhythm was fine, you know, and that's, but they wanted to double check to make sure nothing was going on. But the doctor knew it was from that. I and mean, he was like, it makes all sense. It all adds in together. But So this whole time you're off work, you had to exhaust your sick leave, your vacation, you get CTO. I don't know if you guys get that. Everything was exhausted. And now, so now where are you at? This is 2020, July, 2020. Right. Where are you at? So I haven't been paid since October of 20, uh, last year. So okay. 2019. So you're on unpaid leave right now. You're still, right. you still work there. You're still an employee, but you're not being paid. Um, right. Well, that's because they can't fire you. <laughs> right. Obviously. Uh, right. I'm in a weird position right now. Yeah. Where, that's so strange. Uh, about a few months ago, the doctor said to me that, you know, the psychiatrist declared me basically permanently disabled. Mm-hmm. So I had gone back to the town and said, like, I'm officially putting in my disability pension request oh, for okay. retired, you know, um, disability on duty retired. Oh, okay. okay. Well, prior to that, in October, when I exa- exhausted my sick leave, paid leave, all that, and I had filed for OJI, as we call it, on the job injury workman's comp you know our process of our union police union was the town denied it we grieved it and now they set an arbitration date for it was supposed to be june 11th for an arbitrator to hear both sides oh, and make a okay. decision on whether it was job related mm-hmm. and when i came to them and said the doctor says not only is it job related but i'm permanently disabled they came back and said denied we're not giving you the pension and we're going to see, basically, we're going to see you in court of whether this is a, even job related because we don't believe it's even job related. Wow. So the last thing that I left it as was my attorney is telling me from the police union that 
they don't want to hear both cases the same time. So June 11th, because of COVID, was postponed. I'm supposed to go mm-hmm. again August 4th. But okay. they don't want to hear the town doesn't want the, the arbitrator to be able to rule on both cases. Okay. Because they want to hear OJI first and then decide whether or not they're going to consider my disability pension. But the town essentially said in like a roundabout way, like even if he wins the on the job injury status, doesn't mean we concede to the, the disability. Right. That That'll sense. be another fight, uh-huh. which, you know, and I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting. You know what I mean? I shouldn't have to be. Fighting. I hear you. But so that's where you're at right now. And that brought you to writing a book about it. Correct. correct? Okay. We're going to take another super quick break and we're going to talk about your book. That's going to be super important for everyone to read. We'll be right back. Are you looking for thin blue line gear? It's available on our website at thinbluelineforwomen.com. That's thin blue line, the number four women.com. Show your support for law enforcement and get your thin blue line gear today. Just click on shop at thinbluelineforwomen.com. Have you ever wondered what being a part of CSI is really like? If so, here's your chance to experience it. My book titled Through My Eyes, CSI Memoirs That Haunt the Soul, contains 11 personal accounts of the most grueling and heartbreaking crime scenes I worked during my 15 years in the Crime Scene Investigations Unit. While reading my book, you'll walk inside the crime scene tape with me. You'll catch a glimpse of what I saw, touched, smelled, and even tasted during an average workday. I'll take you on a difficult journey of memories, uncovering layers of emotional trauma left behind. So if you're considering a job in CSI, this is the book for you. Or if you're just wondering what it's like to work in CSI, again, this is the book for you. Through My Eyes is available in the ebook format and paperback on Amazon. All right, we're back from break again. Now, Nick, tell us why, where, like, where this idea for this book came from. Obviously, it came from your your experience, your post traumatic stress experience. But tell us why the book and what your goal of writing it is. Well, initially. When I started it, it, it actually was, I got to a point where I knew I wasn't going to come back. And I said, I don't want to forget about my law enforcement career. I want to kind of maybe write it down as a document. So I have it if I want to look at it type thing and remember it. So it started that way. But before I did it, I was worried. I went to my psychiatrist and my clinician. And I said, look, um, if I do this, do you think it's going to make me worse or better? Because I'm essentially going to be retelling stories. You know, and she's like, no, like, that's actually a form of therapy is writing. Mm -hmm. And um, she was like, I encourage you to do it. So I did. And as I'm starting to do it, I just kind of figured that, well, maybe I can make this a story about look what happened to me and draw awareness to it. So it, it became kind of one of those things. And, you know, the other part of it, too, was at the time I was going through it what I call a spiritual battle because I felt like the PTSD was all spiritual as well with, you know, I was being attacked and, you know, I felt like a darkness was over me and, uh, you're still there. I just want to make sure I still have you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, 
um, I, I kind of, I started reading the Bible more, you know, and I'd always been, I grew up Catholic and I'd been what I, I used to call like a kind of like casual Christian, you know, I, God was there, but he wasn't a big part of, you know, as he should have been. Mm-hmm. And as I started reading the Bible, because I was suffering and I, I wanted help and I was looking mm-hmm. for help mm-hmm. and I wasn't getting it, you know, the CBT is great, but it's not, you know, at the end of the day, those memories aren't going to go away, you know, and you've got to live with it and learn how to manage it. So, you know, I found so much in the Bible that was just like lines that were popping out to me and screaming out to me. And it was mm-hmm. just like, I started integrating them into the book as I was talking about what was happening to me, you know, and I started in the book talking about what we talked about earlier, what, like some of the history, how I became a cop. Like I, you know, I had to start somewhere and then I slowly get into things I had issues with being a police officer, what, you know, um, moral issues that I found, like, you know, cause that bothered me as well. Like, you know, arresting people that I didn't think should have been arrested or, you know, my issues with traffic sometimes and how the system is set up. And, you know, I, all this led to some of these crazy calls I went on that I think all contributed over the 12 years. And, you know, as I'm doing it, I'm like, okay, I don't, you know, you, sometimes you don't know who your audience is. You're like, is this a book for police officers? Is it a book for Christians? <laughs> mm-hmm. Is it a book for Christian police officers? Is it yeah. a book for people with PTSD? I don't, you know, right, right. but it's all of those all, things. All of the above. Yes. Right. You know, right. and I think other people can read it too. And especially what's going on right now at police, I think it's so important for people to read mm-hmm. and see mm-hmm. on our, like your book is titled through my eyes, like through our eyes. Yeah, you see know, what we've go through through right. our eyes. Yeah. And that's the only way people are going to yeah. know. And, you know, I was talking to, um, I'll give him a quick plug, Detective Locust last night till like midnight with PTSD help. And I'm going to, we're going to, I'm going to work with him now. I'm going to be part of his org. And one of the things we said was, look, you know, we came to the agreement, everything going on right now. We're like, you know, some of these use of force issues, like how do, you know, we're not justifying or making excuses, but police mental health is such a big part of the problem mm-hmm. and we're not doing our, our police officers justice. We're not getting them the help we need. We're not letting them reach out and we're, we're having a stigma about it, you know, where our towns and our administrations are treating like they're treating me, like he was treated, you know, detective Loke, like in, in various other stories that I've heard, you know, since going through this and opening up and coming to social media about it, so many people have come to me, you know, you include, you included. And I just, you know, I felt so alone, but now I know there's other people out there, but yet it disgusts me at the same time that you're not alone, (laughs) that all of us are going through this type Mm -hmm. of thing. And we're all being treated the same. And, you know, maybe police reform also needs to be keeping on top of officers' mental health and checking in with them more often, even when they're not mm-hmm. reporting things. Yeah. And, you know, if this guy in, you know, um, with the George Floyd case had all these disciplinary issues, like why wasn't a flag raised? Why wasn't, you know, maybe he, there was something going on with him. We don't know. I don't know. And again, not yeah. making excuses, but, you know, yeah. PTSD is such a bad thing and it, it can yeah. cause anger issues. It can cause, you know, and a lot of cops go back to work with it. They do. Mm-hmm. Right. So what, what is the title of your book? Okay. So the title of my book is Invisible Wounds, A Cop's Journey of Faith Through the Darkness of PTSD. 
And you're and still writing it, correct? It's not finished? It's finished. Or but it's, finished. It's, okay. it's going through the, the official editing process. Gotcha. You know, I had to, I had to hire an editor because, you, uh-huh. know, I, I, you know, let's face it, I'm not the most I'm a cop, <laughs> you know. Right, right. I, I, I write police reports that were often handed back to me. Hey, with even <laughs> even great authors have editors. We right. all need editors. You know, I, I mean, if you saw some of the, I'm sure there was probably past supervisors that are now retired that I had that, you know, one of them had a stamp for me, a red stamp <laughs> that fixed this. And he would stamp my police with reports your name with on it. it. Nick. Right. You know, so he would, if he find it out, if he found out I wrote a book, he'd be like, this kid can't write a police report. He is right. <laughs> you know? So grammar wasn't my thing. Right. But, you know. So it's uh, in the I, editing process now. Right. Yep. Okay. And, and then, say, when is this book going to be for sale so we can all read it? Because I'm really I, looking forward to it. I am hoping sometime in August because it has okay. to go go through typeset next. And then, you know, actually I have to get it printed through a distributor and, you know, which I have all that stuff lined up of who I'm going to use and stuff. And I don't know. That's only next month. Right. Uh, So I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping summer, fall, we'll see. I, you know, um, but in the meantime, I have my website, um, officernicholasanthony.com. So people can check that out too. And, you know, I have more information about me, the book. I have a prayer on there about like PTSD. I have um, resources pages where I, I believe yours is up there too. I put on there, Detective Locus, oh, um, cop, cop line, like other people that they could reach out for, you know, different things. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm also, how, go ahead, I'm sorry. How is this book going to be available? Ebook, hardback, it's gonna, paperback? It's going to be paperback and ebook. Yep. Okay. So I, I okay. pulled up, uh, you know, I serial numbers for a paperback and okay. uh, an ebook. And I'm, I'm hoping to do a massive distribution through like Ingram or something. So it'll be Amazon. It'll be uh, okay. Barnes and Noble online. Like you'll be able to get it. Pretty. And how do anywhere. people, how do people find you on social media you, and say your website one more time? As yeah, well. it's, um, so it's officer Nicholas And there's also the, the social media links to my Twitter account on there. And, um, um, uh, my Instagram account. And my Facebook account as well. That's all okay. the book, the book account. You know, most of the time right. I go, I go by my book account is PTSD cop book, but you okay. know how Twitter, Instagram, and you know, they all use different, like some of them mm-hmm. allow capitals, some of them right. have space and like, <laughs> right. so, I mean, I do have, I, I honestly have to look them up myself because you know, if they allowed it to be all the same, that's why I tried to keep it all PTSD cop yeah. book, but I had to do, I think Instagram doesn't allow uh, uppercase letters, maybe it's Instagram. So if you look up PTS cop book, you should be able to find it on Instagram. Gotcha. And then okay. uh, and Twitter. What's, what's the name of your book? One more time. Yep. Invisible wounds, a cop's journey of faith through the darkness of PTSD. Okay. All right. Well, and I feel like it was a journey because while I, I kind of wrote yeah. it mm-hmm. while everything was going on and, you know, my faith was kind of, and you can see as you get towards the end of the book, like I appear to be more strong and forceful in my faith of like, you know, like I feel like I got, I picked up momentum and I got to be honest with you. Like if, you know, I, am a firm believer in the Holy spirit now. And I think that helped me write the book because I, I, I really do feel like, like someone like me who had never wrote a book before, you know, I had people ask me, how did you do it? And I said, I don't know. I said, the book kind of book kind of wrote itself. Yeah, no, I you hear know. you. My my book, I I this is not this is not my interview. This is yours, but my book um, was born and created just from me telling the stories. And I read the same thing. My master's is in counseling, marriage and family therapy, and I had read that 
just writing things down uses a different part of your brain and it's very therapeutic. So that's, that's how I started. And I haven't been officially diagnosed with PTSD because actually I'm afraid to go right. somewhere to, to, I don't want, to, I don't want to hear those words. Um, right. I know that I, that I have those moments and I know that I deal with that. Um, that's why I wrote the book and I'm just going to leave it there because <laughs> it, it's, I don't you need know, to go any further. I think a lot of people do. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to hear somebody diagnose me as that. Um, right. And, I and I don't, you know, I, and everyone has different symptoms and different, um, you know, different, well, I, well, I guess symptoms, symptoms is the word. Like I, I've never had a quote unquote breakdown. Right. Um, I, I don't, I don't like, it's not disrupting my life every day. I have a handle on it. I still have visions and things that happen, but I, I kind of have a handle on, on it. And I know how to calm myself down and tell myself, right. you know how to manage it. Real. Right. I know how to manage it. Um, and, and I have a lot of, I have a lot of tools too. And that's what PTSD is. I mean, yeah. I learned too that it, it becomes managing it. Yeah, right. And having well, a first healthy admitting life. That you have it. First admitting right. that, oh, this is what it is. And 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 own up to it. Because a lot of people, well, like me, I don't, I mean, I, I'll say it on a podcast, but I don't want a doctor to tell me you have PTSD. Right. What's the difference? Well, <laughs> you know what it is? A lot of it is, is labeling and understanding, you know, and like I said, I feel like even guys that I was on the job with that I was friends with, a lot of them, you know, were intimidated to call me at first because they didn't know how I was, you know, but yeah. after they talked to me for an hour and a half on the phone, yeah. you realize I'm still the same Nick, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. you know, and they right. feel better about it. Like, but yeah. I think a lot of them are thinking like, you know, well, he's out with PTSD, he's crazy or something like, you know, it, I mean, like crazy. That's the word, you that's know? the stigma that everybody gets. Oh, he's and a it crazy is. person. Yeah. And I, you know, I, it, real quick, I went through, you know, yeah. as a responder, I was, um, I forgot to mention, I was an elderly affairs advocate too, when I left the senior officer dealing with the elderly people. And, you know, one of the things I did was go to a mental health first aid class. And one of the exercises they have you do is come up with labels of oh, when gosh. you hear somebody has mental health, yeah. what do you hear? In, in inappropriate labels. What are these words that are tossed right. out? And crazy. you know, crazy, lunatic, fifty-one-fifty, you know, psycho. All these things that, yeah. like, you know. And it's funny because mental health can be, you know, a stigma in general. And PTSD is a form of mental health. But you know, you get you're not that guy that's on your, you know, you think people think PTSD, you're on your rooftop with a sniper rifle, like you <laughs> right. know, yeah. you know, waiting for yeah. something to happen. Like it's yeah. not not the case, you know, right. especially, you know, and I, I, it's been Holly, you know, I guess publicized in Hollywood yeah, and dramatized right. a certain way too, yeah. that it's shell shock. And you know, that, you know, the guy that came back from war now is going to freak out and start like slashing people's throats in the middle of, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah. so, you know, cause he thinks he's in the middle of combat, you know, it's, right. they don't, there's a lot of non-understanding with it, you know, with, right. even with veterans and, you know, yeah. it's not just police either. It's firemen. It's dispatchers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Big time. They're the first ones to get the call for crying out loud. Yeah. The very first line of defense. Yeah. Nurses. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. people don't oh, think, yeah. I mean, doctors, these are people that, and it's not just a problem even with police, because I know, you know, my doctor was telling me like she's had nurses come to her that, you know, and they, same thing, the hospital doesn't want to help them. And, you know, and it's like, yeah. There's all these people out there, especially any first responder, you know, you're, you're in, you see these things that the normal person doesn't have the mm -hmm. frequency of seeing, yeah. you know, I, I read an article once that said that, you know, an average person might experience like one or two traumas for their entire life where a first responder, it could be like 900 plus, yeah, like something insane, crazy. 
You I know? think we read the same article. I just read that about a month ago. I know. Yeah. And I, I, I think I referenced it in my book. I do have it in my book, yeah. I believe. I'm not sure. Crazy. But. And if I have to hear one more time, well, you signed up for that job. Right. And that's such a, you know, <laughs> Oh my gosh. But it, and that's the <laughs> thing, like even the insurance companies that for the towns, they tend to use that as an excuse. Well, well, you knew that that was an inherent, you know, as in your job description that you were going to be exposed to X, Y, Z and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, right. What, but what's so funny is, okay, if I'm at work and I get into an altercation with a suspect and I break my arm, they're going to pay for that. But I knew that going in, I knew there was a possibility of getting hurt physically on the job, right? right. But they still right. paid for that. Right. So what is the difference? What is the difference? The difference is we have to have a voice and we have to keep having a voice and get this done. Right. You know, and I, I think it, it needs to be beyond the state level too, because yeah, I know they right. are trying to pass it in Rhode Island on the state mm-hmm. level, but it's held for study and it could be years yeah. out. But yeah, yeah. It needs to come, I think, from the federal level of, you know, and I think it was a good step recently that we saw the FOP just posted that, you know, the White House did um, suicide prevention. There was Mm -hmm. a bill passed for police for suicide tracking or something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Because it's got to start that way. Yeah. And it's got to, you know, this mental health thing of police, especially now, people are over, like, these cops right now are even worse. So if you had PTSD and you're actively on the job right now, it's Mm -hmm. probably even worse. Oh, I bet you know, going through what they're going through. Nick, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on and talking about what you went through because I know that was hard, difficult to talk about. I look forward to your book. Um, So get on his website, follow him on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever you have. And one more time, how how do they get a hold of you on social media? PTSD pop book? Yeah, usually it's in that form of, I think Twitter might have under like the underscore. Yeah, the underscore. Between well, it, that yeah. way that way we know when your book's coming out and we can all grab it because we need to support you and we all need to support each other. So Nick, thank you very much for your time and thank you for your service. Thank you. And you as well. Thank you. If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide, you don't have to be alone. You can make a confidential, safe call now at this phone number, 206-459-3020. Safe Call Now is a confidential 24-hour crisis referral service for all public safety employees, all emergency services personnel, and their families. Again, the number is 206-459-3020. You can also call Copline at 1-800-267-5463. If you're not a first responder, you can reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. You don't have to be alone. The Real Life Podcast was recorded and is being made available by Anchor.fm and its affiliates solely for the informational and entertainment purposes. 
the information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided and or expressed on the Real Life Podcast are entirely those of the host, guests, and callers, and are responsible for all show content and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the agencies and communities that the guests may serve. Some parts of the Real Life Podcast may contain adult content intended for people who are 18 years of age or older. Please listen responsibly.